Good morning. Uh, my name's Rhys, as Matt said. I'm one of the members here at CEC. It's a real pleasure and privilege to get to preach to you on this Sunday morning. Slightly strange circumstances, but um, I'd say it's great to see you, but I can't see you. So I hope it's nice to see me. Um, and I will address the elephant on my head. Like many of you, I haven't been able to go to the hairdressers. So I hope I'm the first man to preach in a ponytail at CEC, which if you know me, <coughs> you wouldn't have seen before. Um, but enough of that. Let's get to our passage this morning. We've been preaching through John's Gospel, and now we're at the very end. Uh, it's a strange way to end a story of Jesus' life. If you were writing a Gospel, if you were writing a story about Jesus' life, how would you end it? Think about the other Gospels. Matthew ends with the Great Commission. Jesus' command to go and make disciples and his promise that he'll be with us. An ending that invites us as the readers to obey that command and trust that promise. Mark ends with the resurrection. The tomb is empty. The, the angels say he's risen. But we never see the risen Jesus in Mark's gospel. So we're invited to wonder, do we believe that he's risen? Luke ends with Jesus ascending to heaven, promising the spirit and the disciples praising Jesus in the temple which invites us to join in their praise. Each of those Gospels ends with its most climactic moment, but what about John? Well, he doesn't end with his climax. His climax was last week, Easter Sunday, we had the resurrection and John's big purpose statement at the end of chapter 20, where he said, these things are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. A great way to end, but then we have chapter 21. It's a strange quiet epilogue. It's a story in no other gospel. We often think of it as being here to wrap up the loose end of Peter who had denied Jesus and that is part of what's happening but there's more. Why does John end his gospel here? Well let's look before we get into it. Look at verse 1. Afterwards Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Now, that word appeared could be translated as revealed. It's the same word used at Jesus' first miracle back in chapter 2 when he turned water into wine. When it said it's the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. It's a word John uses for times when Jesus shows who he really is. So John 21, it's not a disappointing finish or a step down from the resurrection. It's a revelation of Jesus. The third time he's revealed himself since his resurrection. And in the Bible, if things happen three times or the third time or on the third day, they're very important. So this chapter is revealing Jesus to us. What exactly is it revealing about Jesus? Well, think about John's prologue, the very start of the gospel. might be more familiar to us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. It's the story of what Jesus was doing before he came. Now in chapter 21, what are the last things that Jesus says? If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? John's unique prologue was about what Jesus was doing before he came. And his unique epilogue now is about what he is going to be doing until he comes again. Until he returns. So what is Jesus doing until he returns? Let's look. Verses 1 to 14 is the first bit of the passage we're going to look at. That shows us that until he returns, Jesus is fishing. Jesus is fishing until he returns. So, seven disciples have gone out fishing, getting out of their confinement. Um, they fish all night and they catch nothing. Jesus appears on the shore. They don't recognise him at first. He tells them to try the right side of the boat. 
They do well not to get annoyed at some amateur telling them how to do their job, but they do as he says, and they bag a catch so big that seven of them can't pull it in. John tells us there are 153 fish, which is one way of just saying a lot of fish. It's a strange detail. I don't think he just tells us uh, about it to prove that he was there. Numbers are almost always important in the Bible. There's a symbolic explanation for the number that I favour, but I wouldn't bet my house on it. So um, if you're really interested, text me after the service, but we'll put the number to one side. There are a lot of fish, a miraculous amount of fish. What are we going to make of this miracle? Well, like all of Jesus's miracles, especially in John's gospel, we're meant to understand it by looking back to the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible before Jesus came, the sea is a symbol of a few things. It symbolises chaos. So in Genesis 1, when God made the, wo- the world, there were chaotic, formless waters. Uh, the sea symbolises judgment. Think about Noah's flood. And then it becomes a picture of the nations outside of Israel, the Gentiles who don't worship God. They are in chaos and they're in judgment. That's why when the Old Testament imagines uh, people from outside of Israel coming to worship God, it imagines them coming from the islands and the distant shores across the sea. Uh, The prophet Ezekiel, he imagined the day when the good news would go out to the Gentile nations. And he imagined it being like a great river flowing from God's temple into the sea. And that in it, in this river, there would be many kinds of fish. I think that's the image that John is picking up on because he references Ezekiel quite a lot. So if we look at Ezekiel and his prophecy, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 47, Ezekiel saw this in the future. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore. From Engedi to Eneglaim, there will be places for spreading of nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. It's picture language, looking forward to the day when the good news would go out to the nations. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus met the woman at the well? Or John chapter 7, Jesus stood up in the temple and he announced that he was the source of the living water that Ezekiel foresaw. Now in John 21, Jesus has died, he's risen. Uh, Those streams of living water are going to go out to the world. And what do we see here? We see what Ezekiel saw. Fishermen standing along the shore, needing lots of space to spread their nets, having caught fish of many kinds. So this great catch isn't just Jesus showing off. It's him saying that now he's risen, the Gentiles, the most unlikely people from outside of Israel, are going to be caught and rescued from chaos and judgment. Other things tell us this as well. So you'll see in verse 1 it says we're at the Sea of Galilee. That's the the Hebrew name for this big, big lake. But John actually calls it, in the original language, the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Roman name for the same lake. So as far as John's concerned, these are Roman Gentile fish being caught. In the Old Testament, God always referred to his servants as shepherds. They cared for the flock of Israel inside the Promised Land. And they were meant to be so holy and so distinctive that Gentiles would come from those shores and those islands to the land to worship God. But throughout John's gospel, Jesus keeps arguing with those religious leaders, with those shepherds, because they failed to be good shepherds. So he comes as the good shepherd to do what they haven't done. But he doesn't just come as the good shepherd, he comes as the good fisherman. 
Israel didn't draw the Gentiles in. So now Jesus is going to fish for them outside of the land, which means he fishes for people like me and you. Now, Christians, church members listening, before you start to think, ah, so I need to go and be a fisher of men. First, we need to realise that we are fish. This sign is revealing Jesus to us. It's not revealing ourselves to ourselves. This is about him. Who causes the catch? Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. He's already got fish when they get to the shore. If you are a Christian, remember Jesus is the fisherman and he's caught you. And that is remarkable because we are sinners and we don't deserve that. But it's remarkable as well because most of us listening this morning are Gentiles. We are not from Israel. On paper, there's no reason that Brits should be worshipping the God of Israel. We are an exotic addition to the people of God. We like to think as Western Christians, we're the ones who go out and do missionary work around the world. No, first of all, we are the product of someone else's missionary work. Jesus is the fisherman who's fished us out of chaos and judgment. But he does use us, humanly speaking, to do his fishing. So Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've just caught to the disciples. He involves them in his fishing and he involves us in it as well. Peter's highlighted, I think, because he's going to have a special role in bringing the Gentiles in. In Acts chapter 10, he preaches and the Holy Spirit falls on Gentiles for the first time. This is looking forward to that. But we are all involved in this work of fishing. You're considering how many of his disciples are fishermen. There's not a single story in the Gospels where the disciples catch a fish without Jesus' help. And that's the same today because he is the fisherman and we're just joining in his work of fishing. Now, who do you think, Christian, who do you think Jesus could be fishing for that you know during lockdown? We were hearing from Gail just a little while ago about people locked in on their own who seemed to be reaching out to find Jesus, who seemed to be wanting to learn about the good news. This pandemic, it's faced us with our own mortality. It's faced us with loneliness. It's taken things away from people. There are lots of barriers to speaking to people at the minute, but there are opportunities to talk about Jesus that we may not have had otherwise. Jesus is out there fishing. Who do you think he could use you to fish for? They might seem an unlikely fish, someone you couldn't imagine being in church after all this is over. But remember, there were many fish that day. Ezekiel foresaw fish of many kinds. Verse 11 said that even with so many, the net wasn't torn. There's room in the net for all kinds of fish. If you're watching this morning and you're not a Christian, you are a fish. And the Bible's picture is that you're a fish lost in a sea of chaos and judgment. It's easy to see that at the minute. Isn't the world in chaos? Jesus is fishing at the minute. You might be fishing for you. That might be why you're watching this morning. Let him fish you out because there's room in the net. Jesus is fishing until he returns. We're going to see next in the next couple of verses, 15 to 17, Jesus is feeding. Now this bit of the passage might be quite familiar to a lot of us. Um, In this conversation, Jesus gives Peter three instructions. Feed my lambs, he says. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. We've already mentioned shepherds. 
When you come into God's people, you're like a fish being caught. Once you are in God's people, you're like a sheep to be cared for and fed. These are Jesus' instructions for Peter as one of the apostles, one of the leaders of the church. The church needs leaders who uh, care for us, who feed us by teaching us God's word and giving us the Lord's Supper. That's why we have pastors at church. Pastor just means shepherd. But how can Peter carry out these instructions when he's disgraced himself? He denied Jesus three times. Well, Peter can only go and feed others because Jesus feeds him first. Peter, at the Last Supper, uh, he said that he would lay down his life for Jesus. He cut off someone's ear uh, when trying to defend Jesus from being arrested. But not long after that meal, around a fire of coals, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. He had always been the keenest disciple, but then he abandoned his master. But here, at another meal, around another fire of coals, Jesus gently restores and feeds Peter. There are hints of it earlier, Jesus' grace to Peter. John tells us Peter had taken off his garment while he was fishing, but he puts it on again to swim to Jesus. So he doesn't stand before Jesus naked and exposed, but covered. John tells us there were so many fish that seven disciples couldn't haul the net in. But then when Jesus says to bring some fish, Peter drags the whole net ashore himself. That is more miraculous than the catch, if you ask me. But in the presence of the risen Jesus... Peter, who had been weak, is made strong again. Usually he's just called Peter or Simon Peter. But in verse 15, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, which is what he called him back in chapter one when he was first called. He's taking Peter back to the beginning for a fresh start. He asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The question means, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Because that's what Peter's always been trying to prove. He wanted to be the disciple of disciples, but he was more interested in being unlike others than being like Jesus. Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Twice Peter says, Lord, yes, you know that I love you. The third time Peter's hurt. He knows what Jesus is doing. Three times he denied he knew Jesus. And now three times Jesus invites him to say that he loves him. He's covered his nakedness. He's made him strong. He's fed him and graciously restored him. And by that third time, Jesus has relieved Peter of the idea that he needs to love Jesus more than the other disciples. Peter and the beloved disciple, which is John, who wrote this gospel, they're often contrasted. Peter's the leader, the active one, but the beloved disciple is more perceptive. He's the one who ran to the tomb and got there first, saw it empty and believed. Peter didn't. He's the one who realises it is Jesus on the shore. Peter doesn't. But Peter here becomes a little bit more like the beloved disciple. Because the beloved disciple knows it's not about him, it's about Jesus. Peter's big promises of what he could do for Jesus blew up in his face. So by the end, all he can say is, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And so he leans on Jesus' love for him, and he becomes a bit more like the beloved disciple. And Jesus does all of this, this making strong, this clothing, uh, this restoring, this forgiving, in the context of a meal. He feeds Peter here, and not really with bread and fish, but with himself. He gives himself to Peter again. A meal of bread and fish by the Sea of Galilee is exactly what happened in the feeding of the 5,000, earlier in John's Gospel, where Jesus said, actually, you don't need this bread and this fish, you need to feast on my flesh and drink my blood, and I'll give you life. 
And Peter would remember that here, that Jesus is really giving himself to Peter again. Just as Jesus can catch any sinful fish, he can feed any sinful sheep. However we have wandered from him, um, however we've denied him, even if we have uh, never known him, never called ourselves Christians, Jesus wants to feed us like he fed Peter. He tells Peter, feed the lambs, be a shepherd, but we know Jesus is the real shepherd. He feeds us in the church. Whenever you listen to the word preached or read, it's not really me or Matt or Daph or whoever's up here doing the feeding, it's Jesus. But as with the fishing, Jesus invites us into the feeding to join him in feeding. He feeds us so that we can feed others. As he tells Peter, feed my lambs. Now that is mainly true of the church leaders who teach us the word, baptise us, give us the Lord's Supper and care for us. Peter had a special responsibility to do that. That's why we should still tune in for these Sunday services. For now, this is how Jesus feeds and cares for us. But as part of Jesus' flock, any of us can care for each other and any of us can feed each other. Speak the truths of the Bible to each other, walk with each other, encourage one another. And through that, Jesus gives himself to us. He feeds us. He covers our shame. He makes us strong. He feeds us and forgives us, not face to face in a breakfast at the beach, but in our interactions with one another. Uh, In the lockdown again, who might Jesus be inviting you to feed? Who might he be wanting to feed through you, through a prayer, through encouragement, through um, a phone call, whatever it might be. Jesus is doing the feeding until he returns and he invites us to join him. So Jesus is fishing, Jesus is feeding, and until he returns, we'll look at the last few verses now, 18 to 25, we are just following. So having restored Peter, tasked him with feeding the sheep, Jesus gives Peter a glimpse of how he will die. Peter, who's always been the leader, brash and strong, will end his days old, being led and dressed by someone else, led where he doesn't want to go. A far cry from the Peter who cut off a man's ear. Church tradition has maintained that uh, Peter was crucified in Rome by the Emperor Nero for his faith, which is foreshadowed here when Jesus says, you'll stretch out your hands, not just to be led, but to be crucified. But By the time that rolls around, Peter will have ceased to worry about Distinguishing himself from others, he's just concerned with being like Jesus, to the extent that he dies like Jesus. But then Peter finds himself at odds with the beloved disciple. Verse 20, Peter realises that he's been following behind them. Verse 21, having just been told he'll die on a cross, uh, Peter sees his fellow disciple and wonders, well, what about him? He wonders, why am I the only one in for such a gruesome fate? He has been humbled and forgiven, but old habits die hard, and he's, he's still playing the comparison game. Jesus' response amounts to a very godly and gentle way of saying, well, that's none of your business. Verse 22, Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Don't be concerned with what I have in store for him, Peter. Just worry about following me yourself. And verse 23 then seems a strange verse. Um, Because of this, The rumour spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? 
So probably before John wrote his gospel down in its final form as we have it, uh, people would have known this story through the apostles' teaching and preaching. And some thought that Jesus meant um, that John would remain alive until Jesus returns. Um, So we're expecting Jesus to come sometime in John's old age. But that's not what it means. Jesus' point is that hypothetically, if he did want John to remain alive until then, what is that to Peter? Does that mean that Peter should get to remain alive as well? rather than die like Jesus. No, Jesus is their Lord and their God. And if he wills Peter to die and John to live until he comes, so be it. It seems like an odd, oddly specific little spat to end the gospel with. But remember what I said at the start. Every gospel invites us into the story. So Matthew invites us to the mountaintop to receive the Great Commission with the disciples. Mark invites us into the mystery and fear experienced at the empty tomb. Luke invites us to join in the praise of the disciples in the temple. And John invites us, as Christians, to accept that we will either be Peter or John. So Jesus will return one day. What Christians believe, he will return visibly to judge everyone who has ever lived. To be sent away in judgment if they don't follow him to hell or to join him in heaven in a new creation forever, if they've been forgiven and do follow him. And we will either die before he comes, waiting for him like Peter did, or we will uh, remain alive and we will see him come, as John, for all we knew at this point, might have done. We don't know which will be, because we don't know what tomorrow holds. If this pandemic has taught you one thing, Hasn't it taught you that, that you don't know what tomorrow holds? Tomorrow could be the day you die. Or it could be the day that Jesus returns. We don't know. We're just called to follow Jesus until one of them happens. Peter followed him by dying for him. John followed him by testifying about him. Like it says in verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies to these things. If you're a Christian, be comforted that Jesus is returning. You don't know what's in store before then. But we follow him until then. We let him, the good fisherman, catch fish through us. We let him, the good shepherd, feed others through us. If you're not a Christian, I'm assuming you're not watching out of the blue this morning. Great if you are, but likely you're either interested in what we have to say or you're being forced to watch by your parents um, or you have some connection to church that means you're watching this morning. Jesus is going to return one day. And are you going to follow him before that happens? We can make excuses for not doing it, like Peter, but what about him? Jesus wasn't interested in Peter's excuses, and he's not interested in yours either. What is it to you what he's got planned for others? Will you follow him? Now John ends, in verse 25, not with a challenge. Easy to make challenges about ourselves. He wants us to finish with a final thought on Jesus. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Now, it would be easy to go away from this passage thinking of all the things that we need to do. And there are commands and challenges here to fish, to feed, to follow. But John wants us to end thinking of Jesus. Because he's the one who fishes. He's the one who feeds. He's the one we follow. This story All the stories in the gospel are just a hint of what Jesus did in his time on earth. The world couldn't contain all the books about it. And they're just a hint of what he's still doing now. As he fishes, as he feeds, 
And as we follow him, he is the one doing those things until he returns. And with the church throughout the world, throughout the ages and in heaven, we look forward to that day and we say, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're going to sing a song now, a song about following Jesus, about joining his work of fishing and feeding and looking forward to the day when he returns. We're going to sing, Let Your Kingdom Come.